So Bottle Pay shut down again, it seems. The name rings a bell, Dad, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit of the background, some of the history. To my knowledge, Bottle Pay was a Bitcoin payment app. I believe it incorporated Lightning and it was based in the UK. I guess it was in a kind of an exchange based app. Buy and sell Bitcoin. You can do Lightning transactions on it. And Bottle Pay, as I recall, shut down before the pandemic, I want to say. So in maybe 2019. So in 2021, NYDIG, a US Bitcoin sort of Wall Street company, acquired Bottle Pay. But now they are shutting down again. I think essentially because the UK regulatory environment is just simply too difficult and hostile to exist in. That's a shame. You know, there was a, a service in the States that I liked. Well, I didn't like, but I liked the idea of it. I'd never used it called MoonPay. And they kind of had the same thing. The regulatory environment got hostile and they had to shut down. But the idea seemed neat. You could send Lightning to an account with MoonPay and then they would let you load it onto a debit card of sorts, like a prepaid debit card. And then you could just go from straight to Lightning to debit card. I never tried it, but they had to shut down because of Operation Choke Point 2.0. And now I think they're doing some sort of ridiculous pivot to DeFi or, or something. They're doing something totally different now. But it was, again, it was like they had a business. It was going for a few years. It kind of became known and established in the community. And then they got rug pulled by the banking sector. Bottle Pay billed itself as a company that was trying to solve the micropayments problem. How do you make small payments globally? So this is a sort of thing that financial regulators just cannot allow. Being able to send small amounts of money or any amount of money internationally, they want that to be a highly regulated activity. And that means that you're not going to be able to send micropayments because there'll be a fixed regulatory compliance cost per transaction because you're going to need a compliance team. Remember Ray Youssef with Pax, Paxful, I think? Yeah. He was saying that they had like 400 employees and 200 of them were in their compliance group. So that's kind of the insanity of legacy financial compliance. You end up having most of your workforce filing forms and doing risk analysis and KYC on customer transactions. That's an absolutely insane way to run a business. And if we just think about what that implies, it implies that legacy finance thinks that it like half of legacy finance is doing financial control of users or citizens, however you want to phrase that. And that's really problematic. And it means that honestly, you can't really run a business if those are the regulatory requirements, unless your business like really caters to sort of wealthy people who or companies that make big transactions. That's my two sets. Yeah, that's right. And I agree. I'll throw two sets in as well. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, May 26th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On this week's show, we're going to discuss how high Bitcoin fees are intensifying discussions on scaling, including a proposal from Barack the Lightning Slayer for an off-chain protocol called ARC. We are going to talk about Wallet Scrutiny, a website that scrutinizes wallets. It's an incredible resource for Bitcoiners. Always check out your wallet on Wallet Scrutiny before using it to see if it uh, is legitimate, has reproducible code. They were actually taken down by a DMCA complaint. So we can use that as a chance to introduce them and talk about what they're doing. We're going to talk about how WorldCoin, the altcoin project that wants to scan your eyes in exchange for tokens, is actually a Sam Allman agenda, who is also the guy behind OpenAI, and how absolutely nuts it is that the OpenAI CEO is also a massive altcoin scammer. Also, U.S. House Representative Tom Emmer has a new proposed securities 
Singularity Act. And I think Sam Allman and the altcoiners will love it because it, it really is written for them. So we'll describe what that proposed legislation implies. In economics and banking, there's an interesting article from the BBC that suggests that central banks around the world coordinated a 2008 manipulation of LIBOR. LIBOR is a euro dollar lending rate and then killed it off in 2012, as in they killed off LIBOR because they failed at manipulating it fully. Then in Bitcoin education, Bitcoin Core version 25 has been released. We have an awesome RoboSats guide to share, and we will discuss Bitcoin Optech 252. And then we've got some boosts, and that's our show. And a heck of a show it is. There's several topics in here that I am absolutely looking forward to talk about. I mean, I'm going to try to stay calm and remember that in the end, Bitcoin doesn't care. But there's also a couple that get my goat a little bit. Let's talk about this goat, Chris. Is (laughs) high on-chain fees your goat? Or is it something It else? was the last few weeks, but uh, I know this is going to make me sound like an anarchist, but uh, because I was able to weather the high fee period of time, I-, I love to see it. As a Bitcoin long timer, I really think, especially during a bear market, this is really where all the cards go on the table. People finally start to adopt new technologies, new ideas emerge, but also sometimes some of the quote unquote thought leaders of the Bitcoin community kind of expose another side of themselves as well. So the whole scene has been quite fun for me to watch, just sitting back and stacking sats and not really caring about the on-chain fees too much because I'm not moving much on-chain these days until I rebalance the channel. So I, I thought, okay, let's see what happens. And I am really very impressed how many conversations were productive about figuring out ways to take some of these transactions off-chain. Right. The impetus to develop off-chain solutions seems to be financial. People talked about Bitcoin layer two scaling, but it wasn't until the $50 transaction fees of 2017 that Lightning got its mojo and suddenly there was this explosion of development there. And now with the ordinal inscription and BRC20 congestion on the Bitcoin blockchain, now we seem to have impetus for off-chain scaling and layer two scaling once again. I think it's not going away. I think some people sat back and watched this and thought, huh, you know what? There is some usefulness to this. Just like, you know, you've heard the analogy, some people will get a wedding ring that isn't gold because it's, you know, they want to enshrine that in something valuable. Uh, I don't think it would be ridiculous for somebody to want to put some sort of life event on the blockchain. We've seen, we've talked about examples here on this show where people put their marriage vows or something to that effect onto the blockchain. So it seems like when you have something that is trusted and immutable and stands forever in the test of time, you can kind of just see value outside of even Satoshi's. Just putting records in there of some form is going to be something that is only going to become more and more popular. That is not a concept that is going to go away. Absolutely. I talked a while ago about how I used Peter Todd's open timestamp protocol to establish copyright for a document using the Bitcoin blockchain. So with an open network, that means that people can do whatever they want with it as long as they're willing to play by the network rules. And the Bitcoin network rules is pay to play. You got the Bitcoin to spend, you can make a transaction. So we can't really control what sort of transactions people make. And I understand that this is stressful because there are these periods it's a very high fees that price out some use cases that people think are very important. And I also struggle to be neutral about these BRC20 sort of token altcoin speculative activities on the Bitcoin blockchain. At the same time, I understand that open networks, open source code means people can do whatever they want. And that means there's a lot of good that comes out of it. And there's also things that you will not consider good. And this is also true in Linux and other open source software. 
software. There's a lot of enterprise stuff built on Linux and FreeBSD that I hate. And you can't stop big companies from doing that and kind of taking advantage of the system and, you know, from some perspective. But it's a price we pay for an open system because it also provides a lot of freedoms and advantages for users like us. So it seems like there's a problem that needs to be solved here because there's obvious motivation. There's community building around these ideas, but the blockchain is slow. We've talked about that and the fees get higher and higher and that creates a certain economic. So, Dad, what's the solution? Well, I think anyone who says they have a solution is trying to sell you a bridge. But Barack has a very interesting idea. Barack, of course, is our favorite destroyer of the Lightning Network. He famously created a massive taproot multi-sig transaction that uh, crashed a lot of Bitcoin D nodes and forced a lot of code improvement on the Lightning Network. So I met Barack once and recorded a fascinating conversation, which the audio quality was was bad. My fault. So hopefully we'll talk to him again. Really interesting guy. Lost in the dad warehouse. Some good content out there, but just wasn't, I suppose, arable. Maybe if we can use AI to clean up the audio. (laughs) One day. Barack has a proposal called ARC. And ARC is essentially an off-chain coin join transaction protocol. The idea is you create some sort of transaction, which I think is called maybe lifting. And this transaction moves your Bitcoin into an address or a state where uh, it doesn't really move on chain, but it creates a virtual TXO, virtual transaction output. And this virtual transaction output can now be used inside ARC. And ARC, first of all, I hate the name because it makes me think of Kathy Wood, ARC Research or ARC Investment. And Kathy Wood was, you know, she's very bullish on Bitcoin. At the same time, I I think she's a little ridiculous. And she talks about AI and how Tesla's an AI company. I mean, just really nonsense stuff. She's a very uh, speculative investor who, if she had retired at the end of 2019, would have been the best... A legend. A legend. She would have been a legend. She would have been the best financial, professional, investor, whatever type. In modern history. Because she went YOLO hard on risk from like 2008 to, you know, forever. She went with the money printer strategy. <laughs> one might and say. it was a great strategy, but unfortunately, you know, she thought she was a genius when actually she's just a risk taker. So yeah, that's kind of my two cents there. So what happens in this ARC protocol? As far as I can understand, it's run by ARC service providers. These are always on servers that uh, create liquidity on this network. They charge some fees, I guess, to prevent sort of um, Sybil attacks and and um, DDoS attacks. And they're kind of like a Lightning service provider. So Lightning service providers are basically Lightning nodes run by someone and they provide liquidity to other Lightning nodes. They, they open channels with people. They basically make the Lightning network work and they're not just individuals. They're kind of in it for the routing fees or something. They have a business model. So Barack is approaching this with the idea that you kind of need to incentivize financially people to make this thing work. But the thing about an ARC service provider is while they provide liquidity and they are lightning service providers, I don't think that they can steal these virtual TXOs. I don't believe you have to trust them with that. So there's going to be some trust here, but I think less than maybe a standard lightning service provider. And the other thing that they do is they are blinded coin join coordinators. They create a coin join session with these virtual TXOs every five seconds. And so they're essentially these pools of blinded liquidity through which you can transact these virtual TXOs. This is pretty cool. 
theoretically, because what we've got here is a way to take Bitcoin off chain, but we have this kind of transaction output structure, which is very similar to Bitcoin, but we can coin join with it in an off chain protocol, which will theoretically have very, very, very low fees because it's not like an on chain Bitcoin coin join, which is expensive and uses a lot of data. So we can transact privately in this off chain protocol, and then we can, you know, sort of drop down into the chain. And my understanding is that what's happening with these virtual TXOs is it looks like you're kind of swapping around private keys. So I wonder if this is a mixer or a coin join protocol, because a mixer, which has only been done custodially, is actually sort of perfect privacy, except from the mixer operator, because in a mixer, Chris and I trade our Bitcoin, whereas in a coin join, Chris and I send our Bitcoin into a transaction, and then we both withdraw from that transaction. So it mixes together the history of those two coins in a coin join, but a mixer ironically swaps the history of the coins. So that you know the, the terminology is bad. So a mixer in a certain sense has better privacy. So I wonder if the way that this works is when I redeem coins from ARC, I actually might get a different UTXO on the Bitcoin blockchain. That sounds super clear to me, but if that's what's happening, that is incredibly cool and good for privacy. It seems like it, right? Because the way they describe it is pool transactions are created by the ARC service providers. So they're pool transactions. The pool transactions hit on chain has very few inputs. The pool transactions have three outputs. So I, I was under the, I guess, mistaken impression that you you move in and out of Arc on Lightning. But it sounds like the final end of the transaction is on chain. It looks like you can do both because these service providers are also Lightning providers. What's cool is this model suggests that you can set up your own service provider, like your own coin join server. I don't know if that'll create liquidity problems. This just seems very clever and very consistent with other things Barack has done because he also created a Uniswap clone on Liquid to enable basically a smart contract exchange. So it's like kind of all the best stuff from like complicated altcoin DeFi schemes, but also Bitcoin privacy. And I, I don't know. I love it. I don't understand it fully, but I love it. What I am understanding does seem really appealing. We talk often about all these longtime hodlers that haven't moved coins in years. And I think to myself, if if some point in the future, these hardcore hodlers want to do a coin join, it's going to be so much more expensive than if they would have done it just transaction fee wise, so much more expensive than if they would have done that when they hodled that years ago, when they first stacked it years ago. But something like ARC lets you get the benefits of what seems like a, a coin join, but you're doing it off chain. So you're not paying extremely high fees if we're five, 10 years down the road and the Bitcoin network has gotten much larger and the transaction fees are higher on the regular. And this gives you an alternative that's really appealing and it integrates right in with my Lightning node potentially. So I could, in theory, send from my node into ARC and then back. And I, I, I like the privacy options that having a Lightning in and out gives me as well. This is obviously early days. It's a proposal. I don't think we've seen a working alpha yet, but you know, this is, you know, this is kind of the fruit of the high fee environment. It's new, interesting proposals like this. And this is how Bitcoin scales. It doesn't scale with bigger blocks or restricting what people can do on chain. It scales through innovative solutions that build on other layers and solutions in the space. Not to be this guy, but just for a moment, I have to be a little cliche and I have to point out this is an example of some of the building that can happen in a bear market. And yes, it's proposal stage right now, but we can work on these ideas for a bit. The community can vet them. Maybe even some early code gets written. And then if a bull run hits, say around the halvening, transaction fees start going up. We've got ideas in the kitty ready to go. And it was because of the building that would have happened in the bear market. I love to see this happening because to me, this is one of the ultimate health indicators of 
Bitcoin and Bitcoin adoption. There have been bear markets in the distant past where development really just kind of slowed down and everybody sort of lost interest. That's not the case this time. People are nose down still. And speaking of nose down, the Wallet Scrutiny website got its nose tweaked by a DMCA takedown notice. Have you ever checked out your wallet on Wallet Scrutiny? No, WalletScrutiny.com. And you know what really stinks? This is the second time they've been taken down using the DMCA. It's the same lawyer as the last time. He's just working for a different client this time. That's just uh, so, so, so frustrating. We found this article on NoBSBitcoin.com, and they have a screenshot of the Twitter comment from Wallet Scrutiny about this incident. And right there in the replies is Warren Tagami from Blockstream, who I think might have helped them or just points out that one of the Bitcoin legal defense funds helped Wallet Scrutiny get back online and uh, deal with the takedown notice. And Warren is, uh, he's, he works at Blockstream, but he is a huge Linux ThinkPad fan. We had a big discussion about which old ThinkPad is is the most cost-effective Bitcoin node. So really interesting <laughs> oh follow. Yeah, if you're into talking about Linux and hardware on Twitter, Warren is your guy. Good little follow. So Wallet Scrutiny is this really cool website that is, uh, to my knowledge, a labor of love from a gentleman who really cares about Bitcoin wallets, which we all do because wallets protect your Bitcoin. And I think that you should definitely bookmark it because if you are going to put Bitcoin in a wallet, just look it up on WalletScrutiny.org and you will find a bunch of information about the sort of quality of the wallet. And what this uh, project does is it actually builds wallets from code. So first of all, it it identifies that most wallets out there are custodial. So if it's a custodial wallet, you know, our two cents is, you know, you don't want to use that for a lot of Bitcoin. The next largest category is wallets without available source code. These are not open source. So if a, a, a non-open source wallet, in my view, is basically the same risk as a custodial wallet, maybe even more so, because with many custodial wallets, the company behind them, you know, at least might have some incentive not to overtly steal funds. And then there are the sort of the, the higher quality wallets with more nuance wallets that uh, have source code out there, but when you try to build it yourself, it doesn't work. So what's going on? Is the source code incomplete? What's going on there? That's a big question mark. Then you have wallets that you can build, but they are unreproducible. So what does that mean? It means that you can build the wallet, but there are some deviations in the, the sort of hash of the wallet binary when you build it yourself versus the provider of that wallet. And often that can be because it's not malicious, but it could be that just because the provider embeds arbitrary data in their build, like maybe a date or a timestamp or something like that, that is hard to reproduce on your system. Like you'd have to reset your system date to the date where the publisher built their official copy of the wallet. So this is a really great resource. It's really useful. The idea that you could hit them with a DMC notice to take them down is really an example of how existing legal structures can be gamed to harass people doing great work. Is it down though right now? So I have to check it out later. You're telling no, me how great up. it is, but it's I... up. It's oh, back okay. up. All right. Yeah, back up. <laughs> All right. Sounds like it's worth checking out. I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes. Another link we have is to the total ghost town of the WorldCoin GitHub repo. Why did we include that in the show notes, Chris? This is a fascinating little piece of the puzzle that starts to make a lot of things click. WorldCoin is a very, very ambitious project that Sam Altman, or Altman, as I call him, because he's an altcoiner, who's also the CEO of OpenAI, the folks behind ChatGPT, he's been building, which is designed to be a world authentic 
communication platform. They include little orb devices that can scan your eyeballs to verify your identity. And they create, they basically create an identity hash based on your eyeballs. And then the person that scans your eyeballs is awarded some of the pre-mined coin. And the person who gets their eyeballs scanned gets a little bit of the pre-mined coin as well. So there's a little bit of a system in there. And then ultimately they have a identity system that Sam says is designed to help all of us sort out between real humans online and bots and AI that are spreading misinformation, which he says is an inevitability. And by the way, have you tried out ChatGPT? Let me just get this straight. WorldCoin is a project that creates a altcoin token that's probably worthless and tries to pay people and organizations that are scanning people's eyes. It gives them fake tokens to incentivize them to basically KYC themselves biometrically to a system that could be used for global identification. And global payment and purchases and transfers all using the token. It promises to interoperate with other tokens because, of course, it's based on Cosmos because all of these no-effort coins are now being based on Cosmos. It's basically the new ERC-20. And it's one of the reasons we're talking about it right now is because yesterday, as we record, or Friday of last week, Sam Altman received $115 million in funding for his WorldCoin project. So they're going all in now. It's not It's not really like on exchanges yet. It's all just like their little private stash, supposedly. They're going to invest in hardware and building out a network of people to go out there and scan your eyeballs with their orb. I think we should also link to your latest podcast, which discusses Sam Altman's strategy for creating a regulatory moat around OpenAI. Because let's just get this straight. Sam Altman is the CEO of OpenAI. OpenAI, which has produced this ChatGPT3 language model that has everyone freaking out because they think that he's created the Terminator. And by the way, when he's testifying before the US Congress, because there's all this panic about this supposed AI tool, but it's, you know, it's really just machine learning. He does not say, don't worry, we haven't created an apocalyptic world ending technology. What he says instead is, yes, we have created digital nuclear weapons. And now please regulate us so that OpenAI can be the only authorized safe AI developer and everyone else needs to get licensed from us so we control this whole market. This is the new strategy, right, for big tech companies is to become a big tech company. You have to essentially leverage the U.S. government. He went in there. He begged for regulation. He said it is the digital equivalent of the atomic bomb. He says it's destructive. It needs to be regulated like nuclear arms would be. And then he said, don't make the same mistake you made with social media. You didn't get control of social media soon enough. You didn't get your arms around it. And now look at the problem it's causing you. Don't let that happen to AI. In your opinion, what exactly is this problem that social media is causing us? It'd be misinformation. It would be, you know, the propagation of narratives that the government doesn't want. I mean, there's constant investigations and House committees from both the right and left about revoking different legal protections that give social media the ability to have content on their websites. Like there's all this constant drama going on about the platforms that people can post whatever they want on. And his point is it's a huge source of pain and and heartburn for you. You don't want that to happen here. But Chris, in your opinion, is that statement true? Is social media this massive problem? I mean, I heard that social media decided the outcome of the 2016 election. Social media is a huge problem for people on social media, right? But you and I were just commenting, you could remove all of the Bitcoin Twitter drama that's been happening since the 2023 conference and Bitcoin doesn't care, right? You could remove 90% of the political discourse on Twitter and average people don't care. My folks aren't on Twitter, right? Most people are not on Twitter. And yet, if you're on Twitter, it seems like it's reflective of the entire world. But it is actually 
actually just a very large echo chamber. But if you're in that echo chamber, it seems like it's absolutely fundamental. I think it's a bunch of idiots talking to other idiots for the most part. And I'm one of those idiots sometimes. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think misinformation on social media swayed any election or anything like that. Personally, I think it was bad candidates that swayed elections and crappy campaigns. It's convenient for everyone involved to say, oh my God, it was social media because Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, gets to say, oh, I'm so sorry that social media swayed the campaign. But uh, FYI, it means that it's really powerful and you should pay me for more advertising on it. Right. And then... The Clinton campaign gets to say, oh, we didn't lose because Hillary was a bad candidate and we were sort of arrogant, out of touch fools. No, we lost because of evil Russians spending money on Facebook ads. That's what did it. And then, you know, on the Trump side, I actually, I think they had less of a problem with social media because they won, you know, but then that switches around the next year. Now with the last Biden election, the argument was, oh no, social media is censoring the sort of right-wing view and, you know, not letting us talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. And therefore, that's why we lost the election. So everyone likes to blame this thing, but there isn't actually huge amounts of data that suggest it's really deciding the outcome of elections or it's so powerful. And that's the exact same thing that's happening here with OpenAI and ChatGPT. OpenAI says ChatGPT is so powerful, it needs to be regulated. But as someone who's used it, I'm like, okay, no, this is a way to search the internet using sentences instead of keywords and it's wrong about 70% of the time. It's not very good. Yeah. I've been using it now, um, you know, since they released it. And it's good for things like gardening. It's really handy asking it for specific things about a type of plant and your location and bringing that together. It's good at summarizing information. It's not great at that, actually. It'll often miss very important parts of a story if you have it summarized it, I've noticed. It's good for just looking up facts that are a few years old, but it's not gonna it's not going to produce anything that would fool anyone. In fact, on on social media, there's there are extensions that let you reply to Twitter threads just with a chat GPT generated response. And it's always obvious. And you see then everybody calls out, oh, chat GPT reply. Everybody can tell. These are not machines that are aware and thinking and plotting. These are large language models. And when you load the chat GPT interface, it is put into certain types of modes. And one of them is you're a helpful assistant, right? It has these different kind of modes that you can put this large language model into. And then it assumes that role and it performs in a way that you expect. And then they add a little bit of smoke and magic 1980s movie style would you like to play a game and they make it type out the response which is really just javascript right it's not actually in fact if you self-host some of these extensions to access it and you don't have nginx configured correctly it can't do that slow typing thing it just dumps all the text like a regular old web page does and it starts to remove a little bit of the mysterious kind of oh it's thinking it's talking to me and you start to realize it's just a pretty simple tool that is the benefit of decades and decades of learning how to train these things in a way that has produced results that are finally useful. And that's kind of where we're at with it. But instead, we need to create Sam Altman. Actually, I'm not even making this up. Uh, in that, co- We'll put the link to Coda Radio. I play the clips. He's advocating for a new U.S. regulatory body and a worldwide government regulatory body to regulate AI because he says it's such a concern. And he didn't say this in the hearing, but oh, by the way, WorldCoin solves this problem too. And it's got an interchanging blockchain thing that you can work with other blockchain 
blockchains and you know it's going to have its own coin like the, it's really the perfect little scam create the problem and then sell the solution and worldcoin is just an incredible joke they're currently in some sort of non-public mode where you can download their app and scan your eyes and their app will tell you you got some world coins i believe but this is just entries in a sql database i don't even think there's a live yeah. blockchain here yeah, this is yeah, they're just ious in a sql database this yeah. is actually very similar to the one coin scam at this point there was no blockchain there either and eventually, you know, they're going to launch their altcoin scam chain and they're going to keep 20%. Right. That's the plan. They keep they're going to they're going to launch something, some astronomical number like 80 billion coins and they keep 20% as a pre-mine. That's already been disclosed. That's just part of the plan. And they're going to use that to pay people off like that are out there scanning people's eyeballs and stuff with their crap coin. But don't go that far yet. You looked at their GitHub. You looked at the source. There is nothing going on over there. It is an absolute ghost town. And the reason is, is because they're just building this entire thing on top of the Cosmos SDK. Sam just yesterday, as we record, got his $115 million. Now he's going to go hire some developers to build their layer, their 20% on top of Cosmos. And then they're going to actually have something to deliver. But at this point, they got nothing but an IOU list. And <laughs> they've already, they've already got a whole bunch of people. They've, this is their Series C. This is their Series C rounding they've, uh, funding. They've already <laughs> got like a16z is in there and others have already dumped millions into this stupid scam so let's just recap this you don't need to worry about open ai and chat gpt it's not the terminator it's a way to search digital content using human text and recombine it using sentences obviously it can do some summary and stuff but it's not apocalyptic and the guy who is trying to sell you chat gpt3 as this incredible thing that if you don't use it in your business, you're going to go bankrupt and, you know, everyone right, needs to right. get on board. Replace 20% of your staff with our AI. He's an altcoin scammer. He's a straight up altcoin scammer. So this guy's a joke. Worldcoin is a joke. Everybody relax. It's going to be fine. And the truth is, it's just an out there flagrant security. And I just, you know, they, they at least they own it. They just acknowledge they're going to do a 20% pre-mine of 80 billion tokens or whatever it is, 80 million or 80 billion. I can't remember. I don't know. I guess it's sort of leaning into being a security. And the reason there isn't a public blockchain and this WLD token is not being traded anywhere could be because they're waiting for U.S. Representative Tom Emmer's Securities Clarity Act because there is a proposed bill from Tom Emmer, who is a darling of the crypto industry, to essentially create legal precedent that excludes an investment contract asset as being considered a security if it is sufficiently decentralized. If it were passed, it would be the first piece of legislation that gives things like Ethereum, things like WorldCoin, a legal framework for saying, listen, we know you started as an unregistered security with a founding team that printed money and you know dumped their bags on people, but now it's a decentralized system, so all is forgiven. That's my take on that. Did you get something else out of that? So it's essentially what it legalizes is if you create 
create a crap scam coin and you pre-mine a whole bunch of it and you give it to insiders, but it's a small group of insiders, if you can sufficiently, in a period of time before the SEC catches you, get that system distributed enough, then you're in the clear now. And I'm reading the text of the bill and they don't seem to define what sufficiently decentralized means. So with WorldCoin only having 20% of 80 billion, you could say, well, if they only own 20% and the rest has been given out, then that's pretty decentralized. Except at 20%, you will have kings that will always remain in power. And it's also, oh, by the way, a proof of stake network, and they will always have a bunch to stake. It's impossible to call that decentralized because there will always be that group of people that have the riches. By creating a framework like this, that basically says we have to kind of legally figure out if you, if this thing is sufficiently decentralized, what is that doing? It's creating a place for investors and corporations and like moneyed entities to lobby. It's creating a mechanism for the haves, the people who are already rich, to lobby the U.S. government or regulators and say, hey, I invested in WorldCoin, for instance, and I think it's sufficiently decentralized and I'm going to support your campaign if you agree with me. And, you know, so this is a way to basically legitimize all of this A16Z venture capital token scamming. The first model was let's just pump and dump tokens. But then, you know, when A16Z and these other venture capitalists got a little bit more sophisticated, they were like, wow, you know, we're probably going to get in trouble for this. So here's what we'll do. We'll pump and dump the token, but we'll also invest some of the tokens in creating an ecosystem around it that looks decentralized. And then we can say, hey, it's a decentralized thing. You know, look at the whole ecosystem. Don't look at this pump and dump I'm doing over here. And the the, uh, really telling thing is, so Tom Emmer, he's really proud of this. You know, he tweeted about it and he then starts a tweet thread saying, here's what others are saying about our bill. And here's one of the quotes. He's got a nice picture. It's Jerry Burrito. Quote, this is the smartest approach we have seen to provide clarity about how security laws applies to digital assets. We applaud Emmer for his continued leadership on policy affecting cryptocurrency. Oh, and um, where is Jerry from? For, oh, he's the executive director of Coin Center, one of the largest lobbyist groups. Oh, and the next quote is also the CEO of one of the largest lobbying groups. And then the next quote in the thread is the CEO of one of the largest lobbying groups. Oh, and then look at this next <laughs> this next quote, which is a big one. That's a big one. Oh, it's Pierre Boring. I know Pierre. Perianne, I'm sorry, Perianne. Boring, great last name. She is the CEO of the uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce. She started that after she lost her job at RT. Oh, RT, Russia Today. Which is now also a lobbying group. She figured it out. She's a clever gal. She figured out this is where the money's at. So she opened up a digital assets lobbying group and, you know, started making money right away. She, she just hit the ground running. So every single person that he quotes that is, support, is supporting this bill are the CEOs of lobbying groups for all these scam coins. It's really incredible. And so they're lobbying for a bill that would enable them to lobby to get securities classed as decentralized. So, you know, you can see the financial incentives here. It just, the bill itself too, it's worth mentioning, is incredibly short. It, it is designed to really leave ginormous industry-sized holes to drive through. And, you know, if I was a big Ethereum holder right now or a big Atom holder at the moment or Solana, I would be really excited about this because this is my shot not to, uh, you know, get smeared as a security, I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make them commodities. I don't understand what, what this changes, but it gives them at least some legal uh, 
relief from the SEC hound. It's only in the House. We don't know if it'll pass. I kind of have a feeling it might, though. Um, these guys love making money, and everybody in there in Congress knows a lobby money-making opportunity when they see it. This is, what this is, is good business for the next couple of years for them, if this passes. Because the point of the bill is to legitimize, to quote, um, the ways that participants in the digital asset industry have raised capital and earned revenue is through arrangements in which investors provide funds for the development of blockchain-based protocols in exchange for digital assets or the future delivery of digital assets to be used in those protocols. So this is legitimizing the ICO, the initial coin offering, and saying it's not a securities offering. But it is. That's what I really can't understand is it's essentially, it's trying to just disqualify them from the, the Howey test, from that, from the, you know, a group of people that are organizing this to make it gain investment that people have an expectation of a return on their investment. Like it's just trying to nullify what is like one of the, one of the three tiers of the Howey test. <laughs> it seems so blatantly obvious that yes, that is what's happening here. There is a group of people that will be manipulating this asset for a profit. And you're just going to be like, well, if they get enough people to buy off on their scam before we catch them, it's legal then. Because that's the only way it gets decentralized sufficiently is if they can somehow run under the radar long enough to get adoption. But they're, because these are going to need to get larger and larger, that's going to be harder and harder to do. It's going to get scammier and scammier. If I were to steal man this, I would say, well, Chris, how come Bitcoin is the only one that gets to be decentralized then? You know, maybe there's some blockchain technology that's better and you Bitcoiners just want to pull up the ladder after you and not let anyone else have a chance to create alternatives to Bitcoin. It doesn't have to only be Bitcoin. What it needs to be is no pre-mine, no central group of people that are manipulating or controlling the quantity, the output, who gets what. I mean, Satoshi had to mine their own coins. Everybody had to mine their own coins. It gets harder and harder over time, but it was a fair system from the very beginning. And it is, from the beginning, decentralized due to its very peer-to-peer nature. Very early on, when you ran the Bitcoin software to mine, you were also running a node, you were running a wallet. It was all in one. So everybody was decentralizing the network the moment they opened up the Bitcoin's Bitcoin core software back in the day, the Bitcoin software. And it's true to this day. It's it is the most decentralized system we've seen, and it is immensely secure and protected because of that. And there's just really no cryptocurrency since then that has done that because they saw Bitcoin and they went, I got an idea. And now there's a person, a a, a person, a CEO, whatever you want to call it behind that project or a group of people or a foundation. Right. My next critique was going to be, well, how do we fund the centralized group of developers or foundation behind the project without being able to pre-sell tokens? And you answered that question. If you have that, it's clearly a security because there's this centralized group and they have different incentives financially than everyone else who's participating in that ecosystem. Here's my question. Why not just be a security? Why are they fighting tooth and nail? Why are five different lobbyist organizations buying off multiple different representatives? There's three other representatives, uh, two Democrats and another Republican that are signing off on this. And I'm sure they're working their magic in the Senate as well. To what end? Why is being a security so bad? Because these things don't make money as securities is my two cents. If you have to do security compliance as you trade these assets around, you can't do the same kind of wild, open ecosystem speculation. You need to have KYC and registration built into Uniswap and all of these DeFi contracts and all the exchanges in a way that users don't want and kind of breaks the speculative frenzy that is so far driven crypto right. markets. Of course, of course. The, the whole thing about being able to promote 
and all of that would be massively exactly. restricted. You can't promote securities in the same way that you can promote whatever these things are, you know, these crypto commodities, they like to think. The other issue, I think, is that the U.S. has not been interested in registering digital tokens as securities. So the SEC has clearly been very hostile and non-cooperative with firms that have tried to approach them for security registration. So it's like saying, listen, these are securities, so just register as a security, but then you go to the security registration window and they take your paperwork and then they gaslight you and they ignore you. So I understand the frustration with that. At the same time, you know, I don't love this bill. I don't love giving legal cover to altcoin scams, but it is what it is. And at the end of the day, Bitcoin doesn't care, but it's an interesting thing to be aware of. Well, and you could do funding without a token. Like if if they took VC money and the VCs didn't take tokens in, you know, there's, a, there's like a, they get a bit of ownership. They get some of the token. This is how it worked with, with Solana and a lot of those late stage coins that we saw is these VCs had huge bags of Solana and they were the very first to dump on the market. And then they went on their podcast and they laughed about it. They laughed about how they dumped on all the other Solana bag holders because they had the insider knowledge. And so I, I just think to myself, like, doesn't this just get a lot cleaner if there's just no exchange of tokens? Then they could just raise traditional fiat funds and put it in their bank account like other businesses. And then they do whatever they want with it. And they don't give some VC and a bunch of other bag holders and, um, you know, people on their team coins. Just don't do that. And it seems like you solve a lot of these problems. But then why would the VCs invest? Right. Because the whole thing is you're creating your own money and it becomes worth it becomes worth something. And so then that thing that you got for nothing all of a sudden is astronomically more valuable. Because crypto startups, because they print imaginary tokens that can be mistaken for money, they offer the fastest investment cycle for any venture capital investor. Most venture capital investments take multiple years between making the investment in the company and having some kind of exit. But with Solana and these altcoin projects, the initial round of VCs, they went from entry to exit in like nine months. It was unheard of. It was a money-making machine. And that's why the last cycle was dominated by these VC coins like Solana. Or what was the FTX one? Serum, which was like a Solana clone that FTX owned all of the supply, basically. There are several other FTX tokens that they just made up for random things like sporting and bets and all kinds of stuff. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Now that I, now you can now that you see it all, right? And so somebody like Sam, who's really savvy in how to deal with regulators, would be smart enough to just sort of sit on this for a bit, give a little bit of time to create the problem, let the world really kind of feel like there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Let this bill get through, HR 4451. Let that Securities Clarity Act get through. And then you come out with your team. You got your coin based on Adam that you've done a little bit of work on top of and you're good to go. And, you know, if, you know, sometime in 2024, the market turns around and everybody starts going risk on again, Sam's sitting pretty with a token that has real utility because it's that ID token. It's that spending and transferring token that can be accepted around the world using their open source blockchain. And, you know, and by that point, he'll be even more noteworthy. You know, some people will know Sam Altman's name and face at that point if ChatGPT continues to be in the headlines and AI dominates the discussion. He's going to be seen as a big deal. This might be the new top scam coiner. You know, like if this plays out the way I think he's trying to line all this up, and it may not, this could be like the next big scam coin. Sam Bankman Fraud and Sam Altman. You don't even have to make a pun with his last name. He's actually an Altman. Would you be surprised to learn that the Securities Clarity Act was partially inspired by something SBF wrote? Because there was there was those rumors that he was meeting with Congress critters to kind of help shape pro-security legislation for crypto. 
and pro-FTX legislation. This had to come from somebody, probably one of the lobbyist groups, but somebody wrote this, not Tom Emmer. <laughs> he, he didn't write this. Well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because Sam Bankman fraud was a financial criminal and thief doesn't mean all his ideas were bad. No, of course not. No, and of course, the whole banking system isn't just all gone bad with uh, bogus numbers, like things like LIBOR and whatnot. It's not all just rotten and needs to get thrown out. And I really like this bit of investigative journalism about the manipulation of the LIBOR rate in 2008. Because when you think about it, it raises a lot of questions about what central banks do and should they even be doing it. So a little bit of background. LIBOR stands for London Interbank Offer Rate. And because London banks are a major node in the international euro dollar financial system, England is a country that, like the U.S., has financialized to an extreme. And as a result, basically, the vast majority of English GDP is inside financial and banking services catering to international customers and banking institutions centralized in the city of London. And so if you go to England, there's this weird thing where London is just like incredibly expensive and so wild and, you know, hopping and it's got all this culture. And then you go four hours north to Manchester and it's like being in Detroit. It looks like someone dropped a poverty bomb on that city and it's just like so depressing and run down. And the further north you go, the worse it gets. So England is this financialized economy and London is at the heart of that. And LIBOR was this important sort of interest rate, kind of like a Fed funds rate for the euro dollar system. And what happened was in 2008, as the Fed and the Bank of England and the Bank of France were attempting to contain the monetary crisis that was at the heart of the 2008 crisis, it was not a banking crisis. It was not a real estate crisis. It was actually a monetary crisis, a deflationary monetary crisis where large amounts of financial money was destroyed instantly by you know everyone realizing that creating credit-based money where the collateral underlying it is a mortgage-backed security that's actually worth half of what you thought it was, it means that the credit-based money built on top of that didn't actually exist. And it sort of disappears. You get this sort of deflationary impulse in the financial system, and that causes chaos. Well, what happened was the central banks essentially tried to assert their power over the financial system through regulation. But the most obvious way that they kind of influence, quote unquote, financial markets is via setting interest rates. And generally speaking, because central banks are authorized to print money to buy government securities of their respective government, there's basically one securities market whose interest rate they can control. And that's generally, you know, in the US, it's the market for US government debt. That's what the Fed controls in England. The Bank of England can sort of control the English gilt market. Their government bonds are called gilts. And France, uh, I, I think in France, they might have less control because of their association with the euro, but you sort of get the idea. So what was happening was because LIBOR is a interest rate that's set by banks, and it's actually, you know, a bunch of banks sort of uh, like they talk every day, they like talk on the phone and, and, and say, yeah, you know, I'm lending at this this amount and I'll borrow at this amount. They just sort of put this data together and put it in a spreadsheet and kind of cut off the extreme values. And they say, hey, this is the LIBOR rate for today. Well, that LIBOR rate deviated from the Fed funds rate, from the Bank of England rate, from the Bank of France rate. And that was a big problem for the central banks, because as I've said often on this show, and this is an opinion that Jeff Schneider, the euro dollar guy, will tell you all about, central banks do not control money or interest rates. They control the interest rate in a very specific little 
part of interest rate markets where they are authorized to take action. You know, if you imagine that, you know, global euro dollar money flows are like a system of oceans and lakes and rivers and canals that all sort of connect together. You know, there are these weird eddies and there are some places where, you know, water sort of stagnates in a pond and doesn't move out. There are these places where, you know, money can kind of like get stuck there or doesn't really connect so well to other places. Well, the assumption, if, if we imagine that this is kind of a fluid dynamic model of money, the assumption is that when the Fed is controlling the Fed's funds rate, they're sort of raising and lowering the Pacific Ocean. You know, this is this huge market that they're raising and lowering. Well, I would say, you know, that's probably actually more like an inland lake. The euro dollar system itself is the ocean and these individual government treasury markets that central banks control are more like inland lakes that they have some control over. They can kind of set the rate there, but it doesn't mean that that rate is going to flow out and affect the ocean. It's small relative to the total volume of just sort of like organic financial activity that's happening in the world. And the LIBOR interest rate differential between the central bank official rates revealed how powerless and uh, wrong this model of powerful central banks that control the financial system is. And that made them crazy. And as a result, they clearly attempted to influence the LIBOR rate. The way that this journalist sort of started to uncover this was they observed that on September 11, 2001, which was arguably one of the most surprising and exogenous financial shocks before COVID, the one-day movement in the LIBOR rate was only 0.35%. Very relatively small movement, but that's huge for LIBOR. But after coordinated cuts in rates by six central banks on the 8th of October 2008, suddenly there were multiple 0.4% day cuts, uh, per day cuts of LIBOR. Uh, over the next three days, a French bank called Credit Agricole, I guess Agricultural Credit Bank, dropped their Eurobor estimate by 0.38%. Societe Generale dropped the rate by 0.42%. HSBC dropped their rate by 0.48%. So suddenly there were these big drops after central banks cut rates and then suddenly a little bit later with a lag, LIBOR cuts rates. Well, what's the problem? I mean, maybe, you know, that's the actually central banks are really powerful and that affected the euro dollar rates. Well, <laughs> actually not. Uh, basically, there was a, an unrelated investigation where some traders at these banks uh, started to be, uh, were sort of interviewed and they were saying that, yeah, I mean, essentially the, the Fed was uh, contacting Chase, which then became JP Morgan Chase and telling it it had to lend more money into the euro dollar market and move this rate down. And the same thing was happening in England with the Bank of England and in France with the uh, Bank of France. So what's the problem here? I would say the problem is one, setting interest rates means that you are trying to hide the natural price of money from the world. Your interest rate markets are a signal. They're a signal from the human zeitgeist that is expressed through human greed, which is a powerful emotion, and it helps us determine the state of the world. And so manipulating interest rates is sort of interfering with what we believe to be is a natural signaling mechanism from like the economy, from human society, from, you know, the, the gestalt human consciousness about certain things that about, about the future, because interest rates tell us about money in the future. So I mean, that sounds kind of, you know, hand wavy and meta and weird, maybe, but that's sort of the gist of um, this idea that market 
circuits give us information about the world. And when you interfere with them, what are you doing? Well, that's centralized control of markets. You know, not to be an American here, but yeah, this is communism. You know, this is the idea of a central authority planning out the economy. So we have this weird system today where, you know, in, you know, in the US, you can start a corporation, you can start a business. But actually, if capital markets are being centrally planned, how free market is this economy? And if this is being done secretly behind the scenes, we can't even have a conversation about a free market economy. We can't even have a talk about what the political considerations for this interest rate and financial control is. And we know that after, you know, 14, 15 years of intense central bank intervention in financial markets, what they've succeeded in doing is driving down wages in the developed world and also centralizing wealth even further in the developed world. They've made the rich richer, the poor poorer, and we can't even have a conversation about it because much of this manipulation and intervention and control is being done secretly through back channel means that were only discovered due to sort of a parallel investigation. Yeah, stuff that was going on for years, uh, which did come to a real head around 2012, but LIBOR rates weren't even fully phased out until June 30th, 2023. It took forever to get something that we knew was bogus worked out of the system. And as far as I can tell, we just switched to another bogus system. I wouldn't say LIBOR rates were bogus. I think that they were phased out because financial regulatory institutions didn't like how free market they were. They were hard to manipulate. And so this new SOFR rate that has sort of replaced LIBOR, the Federal Reserve was a big part of designing how this new rate works. And my understanding is they did it in a way that allows them to control it better. But the problem was is LIBOR was being manipulated. So it's like both systems were getting manipulated. So they just sort of like, well, we'll build it in. (laughs) Just build it in. Because in 2012, there was a scandal that some traders and some banks were manipulating LIBOR rates so that their derivatives divisions could sort of make profitable trades. Now, obviously, that sounds bad. That's probably bad. It's probably illegal. At the same time, what's the problem there? Is the problem that there is a free market LIBOR rate? Or is the problem that, you know, you've had this policy that has made financial institutions get so large that now they're lending into LIBOR markets. They're also trading derivatives. They're also doing this. Like the issue there, in my view, and they're colluding, is that the financial institutions were regulated into these gigantic, too big to fail institutions that then had everything under one roof. And now they could begin to manipulate these things. And so it's actually, in my view, the financial regulation that has killed off smaller banks and financial participants, centralized that market, centralized wealth and power. Why? Well, because effectively, it's easier to control huge companies with a lot to lose than a diverse marketplace of small players that are hard to track and, you know, figure out what they're doing. Centralized versus decentralization. At least we're not seeing a massive consolidation trend right now. At least <laughs> at least they've, they've recognized that weakness in the system and we've just seen a massive investment in small financial institutions and banks and we have uh, more money trickling into small banks than ever. It's it's really... Wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I got all that wrong. Actually, yeah. it's the exact opposite. You were reading the opposite day <laughs> notes. Right. Yes. <laughs> 
No, it's, so it's really just getting more acute. So this might sound quite esoteric and maybe a little boring. I'm sorry for that. It's just that this brings up interesting conversations about how do we limit the power and the influence of these centralized institutions that are highly political. And we can't do that if they're secretly making deals in smoky rooms with, you know, banks, and we only find out about it 10 years later. So I think Bitcoin is a nice alternative to that because Bitcoin exists on an open ledger. It's all out in the open. Obviously, that's not great for privacy, but we don't have privacy in the traditional financial system anyway. So I think that's kind of a wash. And this is very radical. You know, this is a radical model where on the Bitcoin blockchain, we have the same rights as Jerome Powell and Christine Lagarde and the rest of the central bankers. And I think they're very concerned about that because how do you control it? They can't even fathom a society that would function like that, right? They come from a perspective of their management of the economy is what has enabled so much prosperity and so much innovation. And the solution thus is more of their management, not less. And uh, I think that is kind of just the lens in which they look at the situation. And I'm not even sure how much Bitcoin would really register for them because clearly a society can't function like that. It's it's an inappropriate tool for society because society needs their management. And we beg to disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, like we say often, right, in the Bitcoin community, rules, not rulers. And uh, I like to hedge in something that's outside this crazy, ridiculous system that's run by a bunch of folks that are so out of touch that they probably haven't had to drive themselves anywhere in the last 20 years. Hey, don't knock having a personal driver until you've tried it. (laughs) Right. I forget. I forget that you've invested in a driver. Right. I'm sorry. But don't call me a toff because at least he doesn't wear a monocle. (laughs) No, no. But I did notice that he was calling you Miss Daisy behind your back. What the? (laughs) I'm trying to get in touch with other sides of my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the reasons why you're busy. You're busy, you can't drive. You're getting in touch. (laughs) Right. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network, jupiterbroadcasting.com. We just published Zuck Dub Time Machine. That's Office Hours, episode 30. And the title will make sense once you listen. We travel 10 years into the future and we tell you just all the things we observe about our surroundings, the state of podcasting, the state of value for value, uh, and the media in general. Now, unfortunately, we can't take you to the future, but we were able to capture what we saw. And we included that in episode 30. And I thought it turned out really great. And uh, perhaps perhaps that version of reality will turn out. So check it out, jupiterbroadcasting.com, Office Hours, Episode 30, Zuck Dub Time Machine. Oh, and also, we mentioned that not-so-open AI episode of Coda Radio, Episode 519. I think probably a great uh, companion listen to this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod. You can get that at coder.show slash 519. And we have a new release of Bitcoin Core, version 25, which I believe is a maintenance release. There are not any soft forks or other uh, major changes, but there are a bunch of of nice to haves. So there's been a increase in the size of non-witness transaction data to 65 bytes and above. This is a, a sort of mempool policy that actually does affect Bitcoin consensus a little bit, but not really because you could always bypass this by sending transactions directly to a miner. So I think that is probably a much more consistent uh, policy across the network. There are also some new uh, RPC commands set in there and 
there are some examples in the release notes of um, how you would use these RPC commands using the Bitcoin CLI. I just want to mention that if you have a deep interest in Bitcoin, having uh, Bitcoin Core installed uh, on your desktop or laptop that you're using, you can actually use it as a wallet without having to download a full node because you can just have it connect to a another uh, server uh, node in the background if you have a you know server uh, a Bitcoin node running on another computer or on a Raspberry Pi. And the Bitcoin CLI really gives you access to a power user wallet that has a number of incredible features, create raw transactions. You know, it's a great tool for learning about how Bitcoin works at a very low level and for doing development. Um, obviously, you should be very careful if you're going to use funds in an environment like that. But I just thought I'd mention that because not many people use the Bitcoin Core wallet. But actually, I think it is a very important reference implementation for Bitcoin wallets. Yeah, and there can be opportunities to use it in conjunction with other wallets to version 25.0. Nice release. We also have a new Bitcoin Optech number 252 with a large section about a paper authored by Robin Linus and Lucas George. That really confused me. I was like, George Lucas? What? No, Lucas George. About creating state compression with zero knowledge validity proofs. That sounds very Ethereum, right? State compression, zero knowledge, what's going on? Essentially, the idea is that you can prove a cumulative amount of proof of work in a chain of block headers, and that allows you to essentially confirm on the client side if a block header is part of a chain. It seems like a technology kind of similar to Utrexo that allows a client like a mobile wallet or a computer without access to huge amounts of storage, like might be an embedded device, to essentially verify Bitcoin blocks, kind of be a full Bitcoin node, maybe a prune node, I don't actually, actually uh, with you know much lower resource constraints by leveraging this sort of zero knowledge proof capability that is quite new technology. I think about a change like that rolling out and I think about all the visualization tools like mempool.space and uh, all the little nodes out there like Umbral that have their own way of visualizing that stuff. Would they all have to be updated to properly display this kind of thing? What kind of work are we talking about for something like this? It seems like it's pretty early days because this is a paper which is essentially a proposal. But there has been a lot of talk about using zero knowledge proofs and other new sort of cryptographic tools to essentially compress the Bitcoin blockchain state. We've talked previously about how the blockchain is one thing. The blockchain is the history of all Bitcoin transactions. But the important thing for running nodes is the chain state. So if you take the blockchain and you run through its entire history and you record every spend, every receive, every UTXO created, UTXO destroyed, the history gives you the current chain state. And that chain state is, I think it's a at least a gigabyte. I mean, it's it's a bunch of data. And that data is necessary for lightning channels to function, for creating new transactions. I mean, this is kind of the meat and potatoes of a Bitcoin node is this chain state. So using novel cryptography to make that state smaller, more easy to validate, more easy for a, a device to reference without using lots of disk, using lots of compute, that's really important low-level work for making Bitcoin just 
must work because we need devices to be able to do these fundamental checks so that wallets can work, things that integrate with Bitcoin can just work. Really, this is these types of technologies are probably the only realistic chance to have a full functional node on something that could be mobile. I'm thinking about our trip to El Salvador coming up and it's tricky to do that trip with a custodial service if you think about it. If you think you're going to be down there, I don't know what connectivity is going to be like. I think I've come up with a way using the Zeus wallet to, to do it all with my own my own node and everything like that. But it, it just seems almost like an impossible task for most folks that aren't going to have a node set up to that they can connect to remotely over tail scale, right? If you just have a mobile device and you're loading an app, you might just have to go with something that's, that's hosted by a company because of all of the requirements, the infrastructure requirements. And these types of changes, these types of compressing the data down and making it more manageable are our, our best shot, just our best shot at getting something that you could really operate fully on a mobile device. And when you're in limited connectivity, that could be that could be such a game changer. Absolutely. And my approach for El Salvador is exactly what you described. You have your lightning node running at home and you connect to it using Zeus, which is a great mobile lightning wallet slash lightning node management tool. And then you're just on lightning and you know you, you can send and receive and it's no problem. The issue is what if you don't have a lightning node running? Now, like you get at, it's all these trade-offs. Who do I use? And most people end up using Wallet of Satoshi, which is a custodial lightning wallet. It's someone else's lightning node. Someone else controls the funds, but they give you an account on their wallet and it just works. And so people use it. And obviously that's not great because who is Wallet of Satoshi? You know, are they going to be there in the future? Are they going to get regulated? Will you be able to withdraw? These are all open questions, I think, for me at least. Eventually, even if it's not Wallet of Satoshi, eventually one of these hosted services is going to burn somebody. They're going to be down or they're going to lose funds. It's just data disasters happen, compromises happen. So technology that helps decentralize and helps us self-host is always good. If you can integrate it into an app and make it so obvious, Breeze Wallet is essentially um, at least a, a partial node of some kind that actually runs on the app. You know, and they're they're one of they're some of the folks that are pushing on on getting this stuff more mobile friendly. There's other things in this optech that jump out at me too. The Nunchuck wallet has added coin control and BIP 329 support, which I just, I'm watching Nunchuck closely. I think this could be the wallet that is the normie solution to multi-sig. It's so, the UI, it, it makes it, a, it makes it anybody that can work a smartphone or a desktop application could use Nunchuck and have secure multi-sig custody of their coins. So I'm watching Nunchuck closely. I like to see that they've added that. I noticed uh, Trezor has added CoinJoin support to the Trezor suite. It's nice to see they, they'd promised that a while ago. It's nice to actually see Trezor Suite get coin join support. Not quite sure on the implementation there, but good to see it. We also link to a guide to RoboSats. Uh, kind of late running low on time, but let's just leave that in there and jump to feedback. Remember to get in touch. You can send an email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter, though I'm sorry if you sent me a message on Twitter, I rarely check it. The real discussion is happening in the show Matrix channel, which you can connect to using a Matrix channel-like element. Details in the show notes. And of course, you can contribute to the show and be part of the conversation by sending in a boost. And we did get some boosts this week. Mere Mortals podcast came in with 8,888 sats and they wrote, I don't want to bring back any bad luck, so I'll counter those fours with some double strength eights. Oh, I won't be able to claim the beer this year, but hopefully next year I'll be able to claim that beer. I'm escaping the colony for some travel and we'll go out of my way if you're in Latin America again. You got to come up to the Pacific Northwest. Got to come up to the Pacific Northwest. And actually eight is a lucky 
number in Chinese culture. So the quadruple four death boost has definitely been balanced out by the ba 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 eight boost. Ba is eight Boom. in Chinese. There you go. Thank you so much. Yep. There you go. That's good. Good luck now for the rest of the week. Ulysses boosts in 6969 sats. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> Okay. Hey, Dad, I know you're a VPN aficionado. I was just wondering if you've heard of LNVPN, a lightning-only VPN provider. If so, do you have any thoughts on the service? I have heard of it. I haven't used it. I think that's a really interesting idea if you have a bunch of lightning funds and you're sort of already running lightning and your life is on lightning. I wonder about a service like that because you still have to route payments through the lightning network. So are you just doing a subscription via lightning? Are you paying per megabyte? You know, how exactly does that work? It looks like it's time-based. You buy an hour, a day, a week, a month, or a quarter at a time. Well, that's great because I think that from a VPN provider perspective, not having to integrate a legacy payment system should lower their costs. Looks like one month of VPN service is $4 uh, worth of sats. And you know what else I like is they're using WireGuard for the VPN tech, which is all right by me. WireGuard is great. My only concern would be a VPN gives you privacy from everyone except the VPN provider. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm very comfortable with the team at Molvad who do not yet sponsor this podcast. They really need to get on that. And they've actually demonstrated recently that when they were subpoenaed or raided for information, they literally could not provide any because they've designed their systems in such a robust way that they just do not collect customer data. So something to think about. They say on their GitHub that after five minutes of inactivity, they remove your IP address from memory. They never store it on disk. Well, that's impressive. I've yeah. got to check them out, I guess. Yeah, lnvpn.net. They also now offer phone numbers that you can buy over Lightning for SMS and whatnot. Interesting. All right, so LNVPN, something to check out. Nomadic Odor comes in. What? It's, it's Nomadic Odor, isn't it? Because it's not, see what I'm saying? Nomadic Odor. No, it's not Coder. Or Nomadic, it's either Nomadic Coder or it's Nomad. Nomadic Odor. Yeah. Nomadic Odor comes in with 5,555 sets. You have affirmed my decision to switch to cold card. Would you suggest simply using the ledger seed phrase on the cold card or sending assets to a cold card with a new seed phrase? I ask because current transaction fees are high. Well, you would create, you would create a new wallet and generate a key on the cold card and then you would have to move the funds into that new wallet. Right. And I think I think there's probably no way around that. I think the issue with importing your ledger seed into a cold card is that you would be inheriting the security of the ledger into your new cold card. So I believe it makes sense to generate a new seed offline on the cold card. I suggest using DICE and the cold card seed calculation or, or entropy adding program. You can also verify that entropy and that seed using a Python script. So if you run that on a Tails USB, uh, you know, Linux and RAM system, then you um, you can verify that the cold card is doing exactly what it says it's doing, which is cool, though a little bit of extra work. Regarding high fees, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think, you know, paying five or ten dollars to send a couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin to a more secure wallet, I would be happy to pay that. It just depends on the amount of Bitcoin, the amount of fees. Sometimes it makes sense to wait. Maybe you could put in the transaction as a one sat per byte and see if it clears in the next couple of weeks. I I'm really not sure. I don't I don't have a good answer for that. If you did a low priority, it'd be two bucks as we record right now is, is you know, sort of looking. I mean, I'm just kind of looking at, at like if I was sending some funds around right now, just looking at the percentages, it's not horrible as I 
I record at the moment. So uh, I think you just kind of have to watch, maybe go to mempool.space and look at it. Like that's what I'm looking at right now. And, you know, one of the other things I'll do before I rebalance my lightning channels is I'll, I'll take a look at this and I'll bring up something like lightning terminal and it'll tell me the rebalancing fees and the on-chain transaction fees. And you can kind of just watch and you'll find there's periods of inactivity where things clear up and uh, it makes for some great uh, low fee times. And then, you know, if you're okay spending a few bucks, just get it done with. I think one of the problems we struggle with with these hardware wallets is we try to get it really, really well done. Like we try to get it perfect, like the final solution. And that just sort of holds up the whole thing. So get it out of there if you can, you know, um, take a look at Sparrow. If you haven't played around with the whole process yet, before you move your funds, go through the process, figure out what, how, how you actually create a wallet that's, you know, pulling the seed from cold card, figure out how you want to do all that before you move the funds, just experiment a little bit and then have fun. Good advice. Pies came in with 5,000 sats, uh, boosting from episode 80. Wow, the last 10 minutes were life-changing. Thank you, and God bless. Well, thank you for uh, boosting in value that you got from the episode. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. I guess I need to listen to those last 10 minutes again. <laughs> Just cut the rest of the show. JCXFNT boosts in 2121 sats and says, thanks, guys. Well, thank you for the boost. Yeah, thank you very much. We also received a 3000 sat boost from Bob B via Albi. Did not get my channels refunded in time for the <laughs> auto payment. Damn fees are messing me up. Threw some Sorry, funds Bob. into the custodial Albi wallet and sending manually. Well, thank you so much, Bob. We <laughs> really appreciate the weekly boost. Yeah, he's he's kind of like our tester out there in a way, right? He's, he's at the forefront of the scheduled boosting and all of the, and sending it to the LN URL addresses. Like Bob's kind of like our uh, boots on the ground tester. He's the show's first subscriber. Right. He gets some yeah. subscriber benefits. This has been the Bob Minute. So if Bob comes to the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador, dad does not buy him just one beer. He gets two beers because he's a <laughs> subscriber. Yeah. Oh, Bob, you should come down. <laughs> come on. Let's hang out in Bitcoin country and uh, drink some beers. Baffo also sent in 15,000 sats. I think via the Albi address, Baffo Boost. I always like the Baffo Boost. Thank you, Baffo. Good boost, Baffo. Thank you, everybody. Uh, if you're like, what's the boost thing? Uh, hi. Hey there. Thanks for asking. I appreciate you being intellectually curious. You can go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com and try out one of these podcasting 2.0 apps. A lot of people like Fountain because they have a earning sats feature that you earn sats while you listen and you can see other folks boost. Uh, Podverse is extremely popular and they just recently had a major, major update for under the hood improvements on Android. It's a GPL app and it's cross-platform. And then of course, if you want to keep your dang podcast app, that's the second path. You just go get Albi. GetAlbi.com, I think. Go to GetAlbi.com. You get the Albi extension. You top it off either directly or by sending some sats over lightning. And then you go to the podcast index, find the Bitcoin dad pod or use our show notes and boost in from the webpage. And you can keep your dang app and you can still support the show and boost in and get your message. I think that's everything. Oh, and I should mention, I think we have a, a 1,000 sat limit or is it 2,000 sats now? Do we, do we raise it too? Were we going to raise it? But there is a cut off at some point. We try to read every single message, though, but we don't necessarily put all of the ones below 1,000 on the show. If it's over 1,000, we'll definitely read it. We were going to raise the limit, but then we didn't because we love reading these boosts. They're so interesting it's and true. they spark conversation. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, May 26, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely as always with me, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.